There is a great happiness in letting myself write. I don't always do it well, or need to, but I do need to do it. There is a great and simple satisfaction, like tagging base with a real friend. There is a me that emerges in relationship to writing, like the me that emerges in certain friendships, who makes me laugh. I suppose that the psychologically inclined could find grounds for narcissism in a love of writing. Who cares? I believe that we are meant to move through the world with interest, and writing keeps me interested. It is like comparing notes. I do not experience writing as a monologue. I experience it as a conversation. Writing raises questions I hadn't thought of. Writing offers me a different perspective, a different and more engaging way to look at things. Poet James Nave calls this poetic vision. He claims that all of us have it, if we will just give ourselves permission to see the poetry that surrounds us. He talks about focusing a minute at a time, a thing at a time, on whatever catches our interest. This is what the Buddhists call living mindfully. I call it living heartfully and buried in that word heart is the word art and another word, ear. Writing is the art of a listening heart. Writing this, I see, that I am talking about the same kind of benefits people mention, when they talk about their meditation practice. I see things differently and things come to me. Things do come to us through writing, and they are not always so intangible as insights. Moving our hands across the page, we make a handmade life. We tell the universe what we like and what we don't like, what is bugging us and what is giving us delight. We tell the universe and ourselves what we would like more of, what we would like less of, and through this clarity a shift occurs. Writing is a psychological as well as a physical activity. When I clear my thoughts, I am literally rearranging my life itself. A woman I know well just went through a season of depression. A lover whom she cherished moved half a continent away. He seemed to take her joy in living with him. She took to her bed. I just wanted to stay in bed under the covers for the rest of my life, she told me. Then I thought, I might as well write, while I am lying there. Once I started writing, I started to lighten up. It gave me a way to move through my feelings. I think I quite literally had to digest what happened to me, and writing let me do that. My friend thinks of writing as digestion. For me, it is that and more. For me, writing is food itself. I need a certain amount of writing to stay healthy. Some people like to write in binges, but I like to write three times a day. I quite literally write the way I eat, with appetite and delight at the things I savor. Sometimes what I savor is an event or even the anticipation of an event. Other times, it is a phrase, a thought, that I get curious about, tasting it in my mouth like a fruit. Recently I have made a new friendship with a very tall and busy man who lives in Manhattan. Yesterday, it occurred to me, David has a vertical life. I meant that his days are long and steep with work, that each day is a climb through activities, a surge like a jet climbing to clear sky again at midnight. My life here in New Mexico, on my ranchito the size of a taco chip, is not vertical. It is horizontal. On three sides I am surrounded by mountains. On the fourth side I look west for a hundred miles over, past and through mountains. As a writer, I am always staring at distance, always looking at something. Moving toward me from a long way off, not only whether m-the rain stalks across the plain on legs m-dash but also people, events, and situations. I love staring into distance. I love squinting at the image of things yet to come. I love the process of watching them come into focus. 
that focusing is writing. It begins as an image, something I want to see more clearly. Writing then becomes like the act of focusing a set of binoculars and setting down what appears. It is description of the movie in my mind, as writing teacher Colleen Ray calls it. It is observing and writing something down, not thinking something up. If we let ourselves notice, writing feels collaborative. It is a dance between reality and us as an observer. This is true even in writing fiction. Just like the sacred mountain outside my window exists and is real, the whatever it is that we are trying to write already exists and is real. Our job is to respond to that existence, to take it in and take it down. Our job is to pay attention. My red Arab, Jack, is staring at the study window with focused attention. I know that he can hear the tapping of keys. I know that for him my writing is both the delay before he is fed and the signal that he will soon be fed. He counts on my writing, as do I. I don't know how you do it, I am sometimes told, when I am embarking on some creative pas de do that looks risky to others and dash a new book with an old husband, perhaps. Writing is how I do it. Writing is how I do everything. Writing is how I metabolize life. It is food for thought and it is food itself. If a difficult situation comes up in my life, I write at it as well as write about it. Earlier this week I had a vicious and damaging conversation with an editor. A piece of my writing had been heavily and badly rewritten. I called to complain. I called to say, I am a grown-up. Let me do my own changes, shape my own work. What I got, in saying this, was a sudden and personal attack. The editor is a writer who is not writing. I am a writer who is writing happily and often. The attack came from misery laced with vitriol and envy. It came like a wasp sting, with drunken swaying, heavy with poison. I got off the phone reeling m stalling. Then I thought of that editor, doer and vicious as a medieval gargoyle, and wrote out my own medicine. Misery. Oh misery. It is difficult to walk with thorns in your feet. The sting, the bleeding m-why is it you are not eating your longing for another path? Oh misery. You are walking on glass. Your soul is cut and torn. Why have you shorn your raven locks, why do you stumble dreamless in your pain? Misery, I remember you before the hemlock. I remember you proud and fierce. Before you drank the drink of self-forgetting, you were glorious, an exquisite gyre, turning in the Sunday. Misery, what have you done? Why do you pluck your feathers bleeding by your own beak? Misery, speak to me. Say your name. Say the shame you feel not saying it. Misery, remember who you are. That long and jagged scar, own what you've done m this costly dance with bloody feet on jagged stone. Own what you've done, forgive it and come home. Writing is alchemy. Writing that poem, moving out of the cramped and cerebral space of bitterness into the capacious heart, I am no longer a victim, an enemy, an injured party. I am what I am again, a writer. I have metabolized the injury into art. I've never seen anything like it, a doctor once told me. You go straight from injury to art. Writing is medicine. It is an appropriate antidote to injury. It is an appropriate companion for any difficult change. Because writing is a practice of observation as much as invention, we can become curious as much as frightened in the face of change. Writing about the change, we can help it along, lean into it, cooperate. Writing allows us to rewrite our lives. My mother once remarked m catastrophically to my soon-to-be husband, 
a jealous man M-Julie has a habit of keeping her old boyfriends. This is true, but it is, because my old boyfriends become something else M-My old friends. Writing makes that possible. Relationships are like landscapes, they are beautiful, and the light we see them by changes with the seasons. Writing helps this to happen. Writing allows us to give the characters in our life different plot lines. It allows the face of love to change, to be redrawn. We can use writing the way a filmmaker uses a lens, to pull focus, to put things into a different perspective. We can zoom into a close-up. We can pull way back and put something against a larger swath of landscape. If writing is observing the movie in our minds, it is also editing it, adding soundtrack, putting on a voiceover. I have a girlfriend who says that we all get the god we deserve. What a scary phrase. I've altered it, we all get the god we can relate to. I am an artist and the past 30 years have been spent looping through plots, meeting up with characters. Is it any surprise that my god features highly dramatic turns of events and dash in trances and exits worthy of the movies? Writing helps me to chart these events, savor their unfolding. When I met my new friend David, he stepped through a curtain and held out his hand. He stepped through a curtain. Writing that phrase, I have a click of recognition, I had drawn a curtain around my life. I wasn't expecting anybody to show up bold enough not to be deterred. Aha, an interesting turn of events, a turn of events that I noticed because of a turn of phrase. The turn of phrase is the turn of a key, it unlocks the door, it turns the motor over. A key and a pen both fit the hand, and they both take only the simplest of motions to start things moving, changing, altering. I dip my pen into life the way I dip a paddle into a river. I add velocity, change direction, stride and glide. The muscles of my mind, like the muscles of my body, love the splash and jostle of the creative river. It is taking me somewhere, but I am shaping my trip, as we go. I can lie back or crunch forward. I can eddy along. The shore or head for the swift flow at the center. It is an adventure. I like this writing life. This writing life. Initiation tool. We are often so busy wanting to have a life, as a writer that we forget, that we have a life to write about. In this tool you will practice the writing about your life. Light a candle. Cue up a piece of soothing music. Set aside 15 minutes. Writing longhand, describe a situation in your life that you are currently trying to metabolize. Some examples, bullet getting used to my new boss bullet my anger at my sister bullet actually living with my boyfriend bullet worrying about my dog's health bullet, whether I should buy a mountain bike. Mood. I am not in the mood to write today. My thoughts are cranky and resistant. I feel sluggish, irritable. I do not want to write. My body of information feels like that of an out-of-shape athlete. The only one who has been doing sit-ups is my sensor. No matter that I have been writing now, full-time, for 30 years. Today my sensor is saying, what do you know about writing? One thing I know about writing is that you do not have to be in the mood to do it. Being in the mood to write, like being in the mood to make love, is a luxury that isn't necessary in a long-term relationship. Just as the first caress can lead to a change of heart, the first sentence, however tentative and awkward, can lead to a desire to go just a little further. All of us have a sex drive. All of us have a drive to write. The drive to write is a primary human instinct, the drive to name, order, and in a sense control our experience. 
the drive to write, that primally we felt, as children, when we learned the letters that formed our name and then the words that formed our world is a drive that has been buried in our frantic, electrical, telephonic age. Email is a rebalancing of the wheel. People love email, because they love to write. Furthermore, because it is instantaneous, email tricks people into evading their censor. Email isn't real writing. It's something more casual and quirky and inventive. It's somehow naughty and anarchistic, like passing notes in school. Email tempts us into writing, because it's a non-authoritarian place to write. We can dash off quick notes, break thoughts in the middle, say, I'll get back to you later. Email allows us intimacy without formality. No wonder we love it. It lets us drop the rock. When we let writing be a big deal, it is difficult to do it. When we find that without our wanting it to, writing has become a big deal, we need to learn to negotiate. I negotiate my bribes, write for 20 minutes and then you can watch that documentary on Henry Miller. Elizabeth, a writer-editor for a children's press, negotiates by breaking everything down into tiny, doable steps. A lot of the time, when I am not in the mood to face a whole project I will say, just turn on the computer and write one paragraph. That's all. When she does her one paragraph, Elizabeth usually finds that it leads to two, three, a small chunk of work that gets down, because she tricked herself with the promise that she had to do only an itty, bitty bit. I'm not saying the part of me that writes is dumb, but it can be easily fooled and easily bribed, she laughs. I tell it only 10 minutes, sweetie, and then I write for 40. But I give it treats too. I make my writer hot chocolate or get it really pretty stamps for the letters it's supposed to write. Mainly, I try to make writing feel very approachable, very daily. My mother was a daily writer. I grew up watching her grab two minutes, while the coffee brewed, ten minutes more after the breakfast dishes, sometimes, while we kids practiced piano and did homework. My mother died in 1979. A few months before her death, she came to visit me in Los Angeles. I was newly sober, newly separated from a husband I was still in love with, newly a mother, and running a rickety household in which I tried to juggle all these facts and writing. After she went home, my mother wrote me a letter. I keep that letter in a drawer in my bedroom bureau. I keep that letter in my heart. In that letter my mother said she was proud of me, she said I was running a remarkably workable household and that she was particularly pleased by my parenting. Now, my mother may have said these things over the phone to me, but what stuck was that she put it on the page. She cared enough to write it. My mother was a great example to me about the beauty and power of writing, as a palpable sign of love. She had seven children and, when we were off at school, she wrote to us. She also wrote regularly to her mother-in-law, Mimi, who wrote long and winding letters back, and to her sisters, who also wrote back often. Letters came and went from my mother's desk with the same casual flow, as, yes, email. My mother did not make a production out of writing. She simply did it. She did it all the time. From my mother I learned you did not need to make a big deal out of writing. You needed only to do it. Doing it all the time, whether or not we are in the mood, gives us ownership of our writing ability. It takes it out of the realm of conjuring, where we stand on the rock of isolation, begging the winds for inspiration, and it makes it something as doable as picking up a hammer and pounding a nail. Writing may be an art, but it is certainly a craft. It is a simple and
workable thing that can be as steady and reliable as a chorum dash does that look in the romance? My friend Richard, who lives in Venice Beach, takes a notebook out to the sand. He goes for a daily swim with the dolphins, comes back in, towels off, and sets himself to the page. The swim keeps him physically fit. The writing keeps him mentally fit. He doesn't negotiate about either practice. He doesn't wait for the mood for an icy plunge into the ocean or onto the page. I just do it, Richard says, and I am happy when I do. Every so often I'll slip up. I'll miss writing or miss my swim, and when I do, it shows up in the rest of my life. I get irritable. Richard, by virtue of his writing and swimming practice, is a trained optimist. Whatever mood he has to begin with becomes the building block of a better mood. I act my way into right thinking, Richard says. Acting our way into right thinking is putting pen to the page even when the censor is shrieking. It is choosing to write even when writing feels wrong to us dash, because we are tired, we are bothered, we are any number of things that writing will change, if only we will let it. It's letting it that's the trick. Lately, I have been talking to Regine, a beautiful, passionate young writer whose poetry comes to her in sudden visitations, arriving perfectly formed like those miracle births you read about in the tabloids. I didn't know I was pregnant until I delivered perfect twins. I have been encouraging Regine to invite her creative pregnancies, to pay attention to her stirrings, to invite the muse to tea at regular hours to see if her writing can become a little less mysterious and more matter-of-fact. Regine is interested by the idea of more productivity but reluctant to lose the magic of poems that visit like secret lovers. Regine is like myself in the real view mirror, in the years, before I accepted my writing as a commitment, discovering it to be, as committed to me, as I was to it. It's a romantic notion that creativity is elusive, that it might leave at any moment like a lover whose heart flickers hot and cold. Creativity is a lamp, not a candle. Something wants to write through us as badly as we want to write. Discovering this is a matter of time and patience. Just show up at the page, I advise Regine. Put your pen to paper and begin where you are. Begin writing and something will come to you. It's like turning on a light switch. The current is there and starts to flow. But I hate what I write when I write that way, Regine says. It's so self-conscious. Regine wants to be ravaged, swept away, taken by her writing. I do understand. Sometimes my writing takes me like a fevered lover m-yesterday, finishing a novella m-and it's lovely, when it does. More often, my writing and I meet halfway like a couple who want to make love amid a busy week and don't know quite how to get started. Love everything you write, I tell Regine. Accept your writing as permanent, a person you are in love with who has good days and bad days, cranky days and euphoric ones. Let your writing be itself. Give it love and it will surprise you. I explain to Regine that I take my writer out for treats, that I buy at expensive coffee concoctions with foam-like clouds. I take my writer on train rides to write and admire the view. I buy my writer journals, raise along pens, an embroidered writing chair that I place by the window with good light. I try not to bully my writer or attack it. I try not to make it write only shoulds without also writing want-tos. My writer has learned to trust me, to enjoy my company, and to treat me well back. You know, Regine suddenly tells me one day, some of what I write, when I don't feel like writing is actually good, when I look back at it later. Why is that? 
I tell Regine that moods shadow the writing landscape like passing clouds. They darken our perception of beautiful terrain and fool us into despair. Can they fool you the other way too? Regine wants to know. She is young and loves looking for the leaded lining. I suppose so, but it's more rare and it's nothing that can't be fixed, I tell her in dash refusing to buy the drama. I hate fixing things, Regine sniffs. I love fixing things, I counter. I enjoy watching my own level of craft, craft. Regine fumes at the mention of the word. She wants art, capital A. Think of it, as tricks, if you want, I tell her. Tricks like short, single-sentence paragraphs. Repetition. Dialogue in place of prose. Prose in place of dialogue. An image to break up facts. Facts to break up and ground a glistening strand of images. Tricks are demeaning, Regine pronounces. Think of it as trying different positions, I tell Regine. She is at that age. Where she likes anything that smacks of sex. You're just trying to trick me, she complains. Tricks work, I tell her, older and wiser. My writing life is a little Parisian, a little decadent, arranged dates in the waning afternoon m-induced moods, if you will. What you're really saying is just do it, Regine finally blurts out. Yes, I suppose I am, I tell her. Once you start, you see, you tend to like it. MMM. It's very hard to write without it putting you in a better mood. MMM. I can't convince you. You just have to try it. I know. I know. And you're probably right. I am right. My horses are staring at me through the study window. For my horses, my writing is a chore I do, something predictable. The sun comes up over the mountain, their owner gets up, drinks coffee, and writes. They see this by staring the 15 feet from their corral to my study windows. This morning, Jack Merlin, my bright chestnut Arab named for Ed Towell's detective hero, is nibbling at grass under the fence. For the past two days he has been ambitious about getting out and eating all the bright spring shoots on my tiny patch of lawn. It's forbidden, and that's why it's attractive. I am still writing, because I am having fun doing it. This was, you'll remember, a morning, when I did not want to write. My sentences were at least as cranky as my horses. Just now the sun over the mountain is gilding Carolina's particular mane. She is preening her head over the fence, ears perked, listening. I have always thought the sound of a good typewriter reminded me of my childhood pony Chico's rapidly tapping hooves. I did not want to write this morning. I am delighted that I have. Mood. Initiation tool. We often make the mistake of thinking that we have to be in the right mood to write. The truth is, any mood can be used for writing. Any mood is a good writing mood. The trick is to simply enter whatever mood like a room and sit down and write from there. Try this brief experiment. Set aside 15 minutes. Identify a situation in your life about which you have a recognizable mood or emotion. For example, bullet I'm angry at my partner. Bullet I love the fall leaves. Bullet I'm sad about mother's health. Bullet I'm proud of my son's schoolwork. Bullet I enjoy Laura's humor. Bullet my lover and I are getting along especially well. Writing longhand, enter a mood or emotion and write for 10 minutes. At the end of 10 minutes, stop. Take 5 more minutes and write about the shifts in your mood that the act of writing caused. Be an observer, I feel happier, sadder, angrier, less angry, hopeful, determined m-whatever. Write a few notes on this process, a sort of field report on your experience. Drama. 
Keep the drama on the page. I know that writers are supposed to have many physical prerequisites for practicing their craft, a room of our own being chief among them. I have had such rooms and enjoyed writing in them, but I have also done a lot of writing, more writing than in those rooms, with a notepad settled on the kitchen table, on my lap in a speeding car, or in a busy cafe. Not wanting to second-guess Virginia Woolf, a woman of firm opinions, I nonetheless want to venture that she was suggesting we need a room of our own, so that we could put aside the needs and agendas and dramas of others and concentrate on the actual feat of writing. In other words, she was really saying, keep the drama on the page. It's a physical thing to be able to swing a door shut and put up a barrier between us and the world dash or between the world and our words. As we all know, such physical barriers are only as good as they are serviceable. If we are still upset by what's going on on the far side of the door, we will still have a hard time writing. The trick is, therefore, a psychological door, not a physical one a door that is really proof against the intrusions of others and their agendas. I wrote many movies with my daughter Domenica crawling and then toddling underfoot. I answered phones, changed diapers, silenced squalls, padded brows, admired doll clothes, organized dress-ups, and kept writing. In other words, I stayed knee-deep in both the flow of life and the flow of words. How did I do that? I made a deal with myself. The deal was, keep the drama on the page. This deal, simple in the statement, is the key to all serenity and accomplishment as a writer. It's a habit of saying, when drama rears its head, I'll think about that later in dash, after I write. As I write this, two of my closest friends in all the world are fighting. Both sides are phoning me regularly with grievances and ultimatums. I am saying, MMM. Let's not escalate all this. MMM. Remember you both have a lot of integrity. That's what I am saying to them M- and calmly, sweetly. I am like the peacemaker from a Jane Austen novel. This is all very good news. Don't forget you love each other. You used to and you still really do. This will blow over, I say. That is all I say, immaculate detachment, no sides chosen. Is this, because I am street? Julia? Hardly. To myself I say, you idiots. Do something else besides feud. For example, why not write something? Hearing why not write something, I come to my desk and I write. I write despite the fact that my best friends are feuding. I write despite escalating lawyers' letters zipping like paper airplanes. I write, because I have a rule, and that is keep the drama on the page. It could be argued that I am ruthless. It is a well-earned ruthlessness. I have learned through bitter experience that, if I start engaging in personal dramas, I will be too tired, too distracted, too distraught to write M-dash and I cannot afford that. For a writer, personal drama is a drink of creative poison. For a writer, the willing engagement in power struggles is an act of active creative sabotage. But he, shouts one of my friends. But she, shouts the other. I, meanwhile, pick my way carefully through the center. I can't really get into this now. I'm sure you'll work it out. I'm due at the page. And I am due at the page. That term, with its hint of pregnancy and gestation, is another thing I have learned. Every day is made from myriad moments. In each of these moments we have choices, will I write for 20 minutes or spend 20 minutes on the phone playing Wailing Wall? 
Will I walk the dogs for 20 minutes and use that time to vol storylines, or will I tell myself I don't have time for walking and call my sister to complain about how my life is not my own? Will I keep the drama on the page, in other words, or will I engage in a drama that will keep me from the page? One of my favorite movies is 20th Century. In it, John Barrymore plays a ruthless theatrical impresario. Whenever he is crossed by someone whose will seeks to thwart his own, Barrymore hisses, that rat. I slam the iron door. Once he has slammed the iron door, the person or problem no longer exists for Mr. Barrymore. What does exist is whatever theatrical problem he was wrestling with. In other words, his is a ruthless, enlightened self-interest. Keeping the drama on the page is ruthless, enlightened self-interest. It is a practice of creative self-containment that makes the luxury of a room of one's own largely a matter of convenience, not necessity. She's got 48 hours to apologize to me or else, I'm sure it will work out. You're both adults. She's not. He's not. H-M-M-M. I am due at the page. With that, I head back to the blank sheet of paper. I slam the iron door. I refuse to engage in any drama except the drama that serves me and my purposes. I practice exactly what I preach, if you dump drama into my life, I will put it and you onto the page. Drama. Initiation tool. Drama in our lives often keeps us from putting drama on the page. Some drama happens and we lose our sense of scale in our emotional landscape. When this happens, we need to reconnect to our emotional through line. We need a sense of our before, during, and after life. This tool is a personal antidote for too much drama. Set aside one half hour. Settle yourself comfortably. Number from one to a hundred. Now list one hundred things you, personally, love. For example, one. Raspberries two. Peonies three. New York pizza. Four. The scent of pine five. Needlepoint pillows six. Roomy poetry seven. Max semi trailer trucks eight. Key Lime Pie 9. Maria Callas 10. Rubert 11. Schubert's Ave Maria 12. Handel's Messiah 13. Emilau Harris 14. Flying 15. Horses, especially Palominos keep a copy of the list in your wallet or desk drawer. When stress strikes, read the list. It will instantly connect you to a sense of well-being apart from the current drama. The Wall of Infamy. Ella and me show you how I use drama. When I was in the throes of a public Hollywood divorce, I was stunned to receive in the mail clippings from friends across the country regarding news stories on my adulterous spouse. My newly famous husband had run off with my very famous friend. Why would I want to read about it? Was this any news is good news thinking? Was this just spell my name right thinking? What it felt like was sadism. Don't people realize that fame is no talisman against human pain? Adultery is still adultery. The word clipping began to take on a new and ominous tone. More than my wings m-my heart, my pride, and, if I'd been a man, I'd have said something else m-was getting clipped. The spurned, cuckolded wife m-what a self-image. And there it was in black and white. But I so read. Forget they cannot do this to me. They had done it. The real question was what was I going to do about it? How would I write things? I would write things, I decided. Specifically, I would write a movie about all the themes twisting through my life, love, friendship, treachery, and revenge. To help me in this endeavor, I invented a new writing tool, the wall of infamy rather than burn the clippings, 
toss the clippings, or bury them in a drawer and try to forget or ignore the clippings, I reminded myself that emotion was fuel and I might as well use my hurt feelings to write. My writing station at that time was a small 18th century desk facing out over a garden. The desk sat in front of long French windows. The windows had muslin curtains which I used to pin the clippings on. I would sit down to write, feel overwhelmed by pain, and think to myself, I cannot do this. I cannot survive this pain. Oh, yes, you can, another little voice would tell me. Write right at them. Don't let the bastards get you down. When this voice whispered that I could keep writing, I would glance up at the clippings, my husband dancing with his new love and dash my supposed friend. At the sight of them cheek to cheek, adrenaline would fly straight to my fingers. The smoldering anger and resentment became the ashes for a phoenix to rise from. A day at a time, a page at a time, a glance at a time at my wall of infamy and my script pages piled up. Days after the script was finished, my agent sold the script to Paramount. In my case, the wall of infamy literally spelled curtains to my former life. Like me, you can use your negative feelings as positive fuel. While my script was grounded in the pain and anger of betrayal, it soon took on other colors, other questions. Characters that begin with a base in a real person soon enough become characters in their own rights, citizens with their own opinions, denizens of a world that very rapidly seems to be more about their making than my own. In other words, writing for revenge, writing to show them, is a perfectly fine way to start, because sooner or later what you show yourself is the willingness and invention of your own creativity. It is difficult, almost impossible, to stay mired in the details of actual autobiographical experience, as alternate routings come to mind and pen. My friend Trent is a political writer. His books are long, intricate explorations of the machinations of power between the haves and the have-nots. As a writer, Trent is a soldier. He shows up day after day, year after year, marshalling his resources to continue the good fight. Trent is unstoppable, as a writer and part of what fuels him is his version of the Wall of Infamy. Trent keeps clipping files of everything he reads that outrages him and fires his social conscience. The files m-updated constantly m-are the prods Trent uses when his energies lag. Opening a file, whenever his writing energies wane, he reads a little and then returns to the page freshly energized by his outrage at social injustice. In the throes of a hellish, high-drama divorce, Howard, a screenwriter, wrote about it. His estranged wife emerged on the page vivid, as real life with a few chivalrous changes, height, weight, hair color. The script wrought from Howard's divorce is one of the funniest I've ever read. The pain he encountered in life became painfully funny on the page. My $10 million home movie, a film director I know refers to his own forged from the annals of hell relationship drama. Oscar nominated, as I recall. So, yes, I advocate writing for revenge. I advocate writing to show them. You turn the dross of your disappointments into the gold of accomplishment. In the long run, the person you show is yourself. The wall of infamy. Initiation tool. When injuries are buried instead of acknowledged, they create a potent writer's block. Lurking in our unconscious, they mysteriously leech us of writing power. Made conscious, our creative villains can be actively faced down. This tool allows you to learn the knack of writing at your creative villains. It aims at helping you identify characters for your wall of infamy and giving you a stratagem for dealing with their inept. Step 1. Set aside one half hour. 
Number from 1 to 3. Casting back over your life, list three people who have been, for you creative monsters, that is, people who have criticized, undercut, or sabotaged your creativity. 1. 2. 3. Number from 1 to 3 again. Now list three people you'd like to show. Some of the names from both lists may be the same. 1. 2. 3. Step 2. Write out the following sentences, using your name. 1. I, name, am able to achieve success despite my creative monster's opinions. 2. I, name, am able to release, name, name, and, name, to their destiny. I am able to successfully claim my own. 3. I, name, am able to use my anger by focusing it to write my way clear of rage, frustration, and negativity. You may wish to post this declaration of independence m dash or even tape it inside a desk drawer. Valuing our experience. We do not see our size. We do not view ourselves with accuracy. We are far larger, far more marvelous, far more deeply and consistently creative than we recognize or know. We do not credit ourselves with what it is we can m dash and often do m dash accomplish. We are blind to our gifts, we are deaf to our voice. We do not see or hear our magnitude. Why is this? Seeking to value ourselves, we look to others for assurance. If what we are doing threatens them, they cannot give it. If what we envision is larger than what they can see, they cannot give support for what it is we are doing. When people cannot see the larger picture of what it is we are trying to do, they will pick out some detail and pick at that. We have, many of us, had the experience of being all dressed up, ready to go somewhere and feeling pretty marvelous, when someone m-a parent, a friend, even the babysitter m-picks a small piece of lint off our outfit. Lint picking is focusing on the small imperfection rather than seeing the greater glory of the whole. As writers, as artists, we are often confronted with lint pickers. Most teachers m-not all, but most m-are lint pickers, when they grade papers. All grammatical errors are clearly marked in red, but where is the sentence that says, this phrase is great? The overall thinking here is marvelous. Most of us never got that kind of feedback, and we don't get it still. This morning I talked to a young playwright who had just written a marvelous play and directed it as well for a chance to see it on its feet. The play is a marvelous, tough-minded, brilliant piece of work. The direction was nimble, accurate, and appropriate. The feedback from the playwright's jealous peers? Mainly lint picking. How is the playwright to understand the size of what's been done when the comments all address the creative lint? In other words, how do we stay both small enough and big enough to create? We must be small enough, humble enough, to always be a beginner, an observer. We must be open to experience, new experience, new sources of knowledge and insight, while still staying grounded in the fact that what we already know and have done is also estimable, also important. In short, we must stay big enough to recognize that any individual criticism, any negative feedback, accurate or not, must always be seen in light of the bigger picture. We have actually made something and we plan to make many M-dash and perhaps better M-dash things more. In other words, how do we stay vulnerable enough to and tough enough to survive? Part of the answer is what people often, erroneously, call discipline. What a thankless word that is M-dash and how beside the point. What a better word, or thought, the term routine is. We need to establish a creative routine, a rote, doable, daily something that is there to fall back on. 
for me, I write three pages of longhand every morning. It doesn't take me long, but it takes me far. After I finish that, after I feed and water my horses and, for that matter, myself, I sit down and I write a couple of pages of something more. It is one of the ironies of the writing life that much of what we write in passing, casually, later seems to hold up, just as well as the pieces we slaved over, convinced of their worth and dignity. Ease and difficulty of writing have little to do, in the long run, with the quality of what gets produced. A bad writing day can produce good writing. A good writing day can produce something we later feel needs a substantial rewrite to make the grade. The point is to value all of what we write, to learn not to be swayed by the mood of the moment into hasty judgments. Too many times, torn up pages are merely a reflection of our mood and not a reflection of merit. The computer, with its deadly delete button, should be seen as a clear and present enemy. Most often, a small scrap of writing that we are tempted to send to oblivion can be saved in a slush file and found to fit perfectly later. I'm often astounded by what I write in passing without even noticing it in my journal, Alex told me. I was ready to pitch all my journals, because they were just building up, when I decided to look back through them first. I was astounded. There were all sorts of great ideas and some really great fragments. I think, on the one hand, it is good to write so casually that I can just toss writing off. On the other hand, I don't want to be so casual that I just toss writing away. I have been writing morning pages for the better part of two decades. While they are not intended to be art, they are often a scene for art. My musical Avalon began as a single sentence, a tease, wouldn't it be fun to write a musical about Merlin? Countless students have told me their own creative adventures began with similar one-line asides, sudden insights they set to the page. Kathy, a musician, was mid-album when her pages suggested a shift in direction more true to herself. The resulting album was considered to be breakthrough work m-work that came about, because Kathy, through daily writing, had learned to value her experience. Valuing our experience is not narcissism. It is not endless self-involvement. It is, rather, the act of paying active witness to ourselves and to our world. Such witness is an act of dignity, an act that recognizes that life is essentially a sacred transaction of which we know only the shadow, not the shape. As we attune ourselves more and more closely to the value of passing moments, we learn that we are something of moment ourselves. Valuing our experience. Initiation tool. Writing is an act of self-cherishing. We often write most deeply and happily on those areas closest to our heart. This tool contains clues to your personal value system. Set aside one hour. Take yourself out of the house and to a pleasant writing environment. It could be a coffee shop, but it could be a church, synagogue, or library. Number from 1 to 50. List 50 things you are proud of, from the small to the large. For example, 1. Moving to New York 2. Writing a one-act play 3. Giving up alcohol for remembering our anniversary 5. Putting myself through college 6. My pie crust 7. My report with dogs 8. My relationship with my mother 9. The design I did for our newsletter 10. Losing the 10 pounds and keeping it off. During the next week, review this list several times at your leisure. What does it teach you about what you value? You may find you value your sense of daring, or your sense of thoughtfulness physical adventures or intellectual ones, acts of outer initiative or times of inner reflection. 
Knowing what experiences have been important to you is a clue not only to what you might want to do more of but also to what you might want to write about. Specificity. I believe in specificity. I trust it. Specificity is like breathing, one breath at a time, that is, how life is built. One thing at a time, one thought, one word at a time. That is how writing life is built. Writing is about living. It is about specificity. Writing is about seeing, hearing, feeling, smelling, touching. It is more about all these things than it is about thinking. We have an idea that writers must be smart. By smart, we actually mean clever. We know what clever looks like, it is the maserity turn of a phrase, the cornering of a comment with a speed and grace the rest of us can't handle. Yes, that's one form of writing, the showy kind, but that is not all that writing is about. Go back to the breath, to the way that it sustains us. We do not have to think about it. When we try to, it can be hard, then easy, then interesting, then calm, safe, centering. Writing, when we let ourselves do it, is like breathing. It doesn't have to be fancy. It need only be regular and steady. That is deep enough. That takes us deeper. And how, then, do we go deeper? Writing regularly and steadily, we strive to be specific. We focus on our writing the way, as a mediator, we focus on our breath. We notice the precise word that occurs to us. We use that word and then we notice another word. It is a listening process, a focusing on what rises up so we can take it down. I love to write in the mornings, but I am writing this midway through Mother's Day, a long afternoon. Outside my study window, birds are insistently chirping m-now they've stopped. There is a magpie nest in a smallish tree. It is a big nest, not stable looking, and I worry about it during storms. Then I think, those magpies know what they're doing. It's what they do. If we let ourselves write, we also come to know what we're doing. We know how to write, because writing is what we do. The more we do it, the more specifically and regularly we do it, the easier it is to do, like hammering a nail, you get the swing of it, when you do it more often than Sunday repairs. For many of us, writing has been reserved for Sunday repairs. We repair. To the page, there's a writerly bit of cornering to examine some sharp pain, to see if we can express an extreme emotion, anger, passion, resentment, a proposal, love and dash especially love. Love letters exist, as a genre, because the force of our emotions forces us to write. I don't know how to tell you, we write. But we do know how to tell. We know, if we will let ourselves know. We know, if we are willing to be specific. Being specific in writing means taking the general and looking at it more closely. I feel okay about that then becomes I don't feel good about that, but I do not feel so terrible either. I feel disappointed and resigned. I am close to depression, which I hope will pass. Sometimes, often, specificity is as simple as facts. A horse becomes a small brown horse with a white star and a wispy tail. Each fact adds to our credibility. The reader trusts us, because we give enough detail for our rise m-dash which they are using m-dash to be trusted. Sensual specificity is another way to get specific. Cold or hot. Bright or dark. Sweet smelling or rank. Our senses give readers a sense of what we are writing about. Sometimes specificity is tonal. A room is proper or cozy. A lover's voice is welcoming or chill. A sky is sunny and expansive or foreboding. Sometimes specificity shows in our verbs. 
A boat schemes or slices the water. A cat leaps or pounces. A phone rings or shrills. Writing is making choices, and the choices we make can be generic, which will cost us our reader's faith, or specific, which will gain our reader's trust. Detail allows us to communicate precisely what we mean. For me, part of the ability to be specific has to do with writing to a specific someone, someone who gets you. I know that writers are often told not to think about their audience, but I think that advice can be difficult to use. The audience then becomes something vague and amorphous. How do you communicate with that? And isn't ignoring it just a little coy? Better to let the audience be someone real and dash a lover, a best friend, a colleague, someone who gets your jokes or just likes how you think. Choose someone on whom nothing will be wasted, someone with an appetite for life in all its messy glory. That someone will enjoy your writing specifically. Write specifically to that someone. This will make your writing targeted and focused. It will also bring to your writing a purity of intent. In the practice of singing, much can be done with technique. There is, however, an elusive something that comes when the singer sings with love. That intention brings to the voice a purity that is at once evanescent and unmistakable. The same purification happens to our writing when we write with specific loving intent. It is a great paradox that the more personal, focused, and specific your writing becomes, the more universally it communicates. Although we seldom view it this way, specificity is freedom. In the act of naming things precisely, as they appear to us, we free our work from misunderstandings, from ambiguity, from vagueness. At its base, writing is an act of love, and when we perform it consciously, concretely, and lovingly, grace enters the equation. We M-and the reader M-have an experience of something larger communicating through the vessel of our work. That larger something M-whose eye is on the sparrow M-knows a great deal about the value of specificity. God is in the details, exclaimed Ludwig Mies van der Rohe. Writing specifically, writing detail by detail, we encounter not only ourselves, not only our truth, but the greater truth that stands behind all art and all communication. We touch the spiritual fact that as divided as we may feel ourselves to be, we are nonetheless one. That is the central fact that all real writing communicates them dash and it does it specifically. After rain in Taos Valley. The clouds graze like great mammals nibbling the hills. They are white, woolly, tender and large enough to eat me. Specificity. Initiation tool. Although we tend to think of it as linear, writing is a profoundly visual art. Even if we are writing about internal experience, we use images to do it. For this reason, we must consciously and constantly restock our store of images. We do this by focusing on what is around us. This tool is not intended to be high art or serious writing. It is simply an exercise in observation. Set aside one hour. Settle into write at home or out. Begin by numbering from 1 to 10. List and describe 10 items in your immediate environment. What are your associations with them, however nonsensical? For example, 1. A silver espresso machine. Its intricate gadgetry reminds me of the movie Metropolis. 2. A smoked mirror. I associate these with brothels, salons, and sexual decadence. 3. A white-shirted waitress. I connect to a sense of sweetness and life at a slower pace. I am reminded of Edward Hopper paintings, pulp novels like The Postman Always Rings Twice. 
Now, step 2, list and describe 10 personal objects that have, for you personal emotional weight. Describe especially both the object and the reasons for its emotional relevance. 1. A vintage poster of circus acrobats. This I connect to my memories of my father and his later life on long boats key near the Ringling Brothers' winter quarters. 2. A blue and white porcelain Chinese jar, twined with dragons. My dot jar. Bought in Chinatown, Los Angeles, in the late 70s, when I was newly sober and needed help with my many worries. I would place a worry into the jar and later see its outworking, as an answered prayer. 3. A stone carving of a mother owl cradling her young. This is for me an image of the mysterious and protective higher forces at play in my life. Connecting to our environment consciously and concretely allows us to connect with greater specificity and emotional resonance to our own inner life. This makes for writing of a rich, timber, body of experience. We often talk about a writer having a body of work without realizing that this is a literal phrase. Because we think of writing as something disembodied and cerebral, because we think of writing rather than notice that what we do with it is really meet or encounter it, we seldom realize that writing, like all art, is an embodied experience. When I have a tangled plot line, I walk to sort it out. I walk and I'm well. I am not exactly thinking about my writing as I walk, but the question is there, posed by my mind to my body. My body, which carries a knowledge deeper than my mind, has answers for me as an artist and as a person. My mind, anyone's mind, for all its multifaceted brilliance, can be a house of mirrors, a maze of dead ends when seeking a creative solution. Composer Michael Hawk goes running daily to catch his melody lines. The song lines he seeks snake through Los Angeles, as they snake through all of our green planet. We can feel them, if we will enter our bodies and actively seek them out. Hop seeks melody through his long, loping runs. Melodies occur note at a time, just like writing. My friend Natalie Goldberg, both writer and painter, sets herself long hikes through the sagebrush. She lets the landscape speak to her questions. My friend John Nichols, writer, photographer, and ecologist, hikes a small mountain every afternoon at twilight. He climbs, and the work of climbing puts him into his body and into his body of work. Home from his hike, he writes evening into dawn. That is his work day. For myself, when I am writing music, melody and lyrics, I love to roller skate. The summer I lived in London, writing my musical Avalon, I took daily, sometimes twice daily, forays to Regent's Park. There, amid the canals on which the Queen's swans glided, I sang my lyrics into a handheld tape recorder, while my skates m-stroke, stroke, stroke, just like a pen m-did the work of writing for me. We look at the fact that the British nature poets were great walkers, but we seldom make the connection that poetry is comprised of feet and that walking was a part of the poet's creative path. We read Robert Frost without realizing how pivotal walking was to his writing life. Two roads diverged in a wood. That wood was not something he sped by in a car. Frost's woods, his tumble-down stone walls, his birches m-in short, the images and insights that comprise his most known body of work m-these came to him at eye level. His poetic feet actually walked the earth. We store memories in our bodies. We store passion and heartache. We store joy, moments of transcendent peace. If we are to access these, if we are to move into them and through them, we must enter our bodies to do so.
When we encounter an emotional shock, the trauma of a lost beloved, the grief of separation, our bodies count the cost. 